should turn my mic on before I start trying to talk. I don't even know if I should try to follow that. I may as well just walk on down now. <laughs> Thank you for what, what a gift, choir. Um, it's been moving this morning. Thank you. As I mentioned in uh, my announcements, this is the final uh, Sunday in the season after Epiphany. And later on this week, we will enter into the season of Lent through the threshold that is Ash Wednesday. Um, We'll spend more time discussing this next week, but during Lent, our focus in worship is going to be on how Jesus taught us to pray. We've been following the lectionary the last few weeks. We'll follow it for most of the rest of the year, but during the season of Lent, we will have a focused examination of the Lord's Prayer. Um, It's something we say each Sunday in worship, but we'll spend some time during Lent really sinking into it. Um, So I'm looking forward to exploring that together in our worship starting next week. And I'd also invite you once again to participate in our Wednesday Lenten worship services and soup suppers beginning on Ash Wednesday. It'd be a great way to kind of sink in to the season of Lent. But today we are celebrating Transfiguration Sunday. If you'd like more information about what that Sunday means, you can read about it in your bulletin jacket on the back flap. I won't talk about that much more this morning, um, but I will say that this is the final sermon in our Epiphany sermon series, which we've been calling Foretold. Uh, Through this sermon series, we've uh, focused on a number of things. We've seen how God brings heaven's beauty to earth in Jesus' baptism. We've seen how Jesus invites disciples to follow him, how Jesus can use our work for God no matter our occupation, how God's truth heals us, body and soul, and how we can join God in the flow of Jesus' healing. And our second reading this morning will come to us from the Gospel of Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. If you'd like to follow along in your Red Pew Bibles, you can find this on page 44. This is Mark 9, 2 through 9. Listen now for God's word to you. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter didn't know what to say. They were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. And suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Oh, holy God, we thank you for all you do, and especially for the scripture you give us for our learning. By the power of your spirit, may this scripture give us a word of hope from you this day. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, your word made flesh, our Lord. Amen. Maybe you've experienced this before, not the transfiguration that is, but seeing someone or something in a new light. It can be quite powerful. 
I remember after a couple of years of college being way, way more impressed with my parents than I was growing up. Both of them had gone through college, and although I had taken them for granted and all that they knew and all that they could do for granted, I had not realized that even in sort of the cushy environment of the dorms when you go and study, like, there's stuff you need to do, and you need to figure out how to live, and that's hard. I also realized that they knew how to take care of space a lot better than the guys I was living with in the fraternity house, turns out. Maybe that isn't very surprising to you. But when we see someone for who they really are, when we see someone in a new light, there are going to be elements of that, elements of that person that surpass our expectations. Wow, you know how to do those things? There will also probably element, there will, excuse me, there will also probably be elements of that person that disappoint us. Truth tends to reveal both of these things. It's double-edged in that way. I, I think that's one of the reasons that most horror movies, for example, take place in darkness. The mystery and the unknown that comes from the lack of light and the lack of clarity, well, it invites us to fill in the blanks with our own assumptions. And we have a way of assuming either our worst fears or our most desperate hopes when we don't know something. But if a light shines forth and illuminates the unknown and the mystery dissipates, we can see something or someone in truth, both what is unexpected and which overwhelms us with what we did not assume was true about them, both good and for bad. The act of seeing something, of seeing clearly, it's deeply powerful. You cannot return to a period of ignorance. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. This is why we sometimes tell little children, be careful little eyes what you see. You know that song? Be careful little ears what you hear. This is why movies and TV shows have ratings based on what they show to you on the screen. Because seeing something directly, it's a powerful act. And that might be why Jesus only takes the inner circle of, dis of his disciples up the mountain for his transfiguration. None of the other nine besides Peter, James, and John, nor any of those who followed him from a distance are invited to this practice of seeing him for who he truly is. This is a powerful, intimate act. So they reach the top of the mountain, Jesus with Peter, James, and John, and we aren't told what they were doing up on top of the mountain. We weren't told whether they had like a spontaneous prayer service up there. Maybe they were having a reading of Torah. All we're told is that Jesus was transfigured before them. And this causes him to become dazzling in their sight. So dazzling, in fact, that no earthly individual could recreate this effect. Whatever the disciples see in the transfiguration, this place that they're in is clearly what, what I might call a thin place. Maybe you've used this term before, you've, you've heard it. A thin place is a place where the separation between heaven and earth is very thin, and it feels like there's something mysterious and spiritual at work. The disciples are granted a peek into the truth of Jesus, the truth of heaven. And when Jesus is transfigured, 
Elijah and Moses suddenly poof into existence with him. Again, we're not told the details of this. It's almost as if the details are less important than the reality. Because Elijah and Moses, they're heroes to the disciples who see them with Jesus. They're on the Mount Rushmore, right, of Israelite heroes and Israelite prophets and such. You could maybe think of Moses as being their George Washington and Elijah as similar to Abraham Lincoln. Now, to his credit, Peter immediately puts Jesus on the same level as these two, offering to build them all tents. I love you, Peter. He's, he's, he's so great at just saying what probably the other disciples were thinking because uh, Peter was trying to help all of them prepare for an encounter with God. The children of Israel uh, in, their, in their history would celebrate this annual feast called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths in which they would make for themselves tabernacles and they'd remember how they walked through the wilderness. They'd remember the God with them portion of their journey in the wilderness. They would remember how God provided for them. It's like Peter is expecting Jesus to bring them all back to an era where they would live as tense as the, in tents as the children of Israel did in the wilderness and that God would be among them. This is what Peter has in mind. But in his earnestness, in his desire to do right by Jesus, in his desire to do right by Elijah and Moses, maybe even his nostalgia for a previous time, Peter makes... Something like, I guess I would call it a category error. He tries to identify Jesus by looking backward to the heroes of Israel's past and then raising Jesus up to the same level as Moses and Elijah. But Jesus, as we know, is not on the same level as Moses and Elijah. He is creator, and Moses and Elijah are creation. He needs no tabernacle to stand before the presence of God. He himself is the tabernacle, the presence of God that has taken on flesh in this earthly tent. God's glory dwelling among us. It's this truth that the transfiguration invites us to see. It's this truth the transfiguration invites us to behold. No longer is Jesus shrouding his identity in mystery. He's shining a light on it for these three disciples to see. And when we see Jesus for who he really is, there's nothing disappointing. The truth of Jesus surpasses and overwhelms all our expectations. Well, maybe I shouldn't say nothing disappointing. You see, I heard a phrase earlier this week that, that resonated with me and I think might get at what Peter, James, and John experience in the transfiguration. The phrase is this, change is loss. Change is loss. Even when change is good, the fact that something is changing means that it isn't what it once was. It isn't what we once perceived it to be. It isn't what we may have expected it to be. Even when the way things were had issues, at least we knew about those issues. Better the evil you know, right? But when things change, even when they change for the better, we experience loss. We experience a disorientation. We experience maybe a loss of control or, or, or maybe the loss of opportunity or the loss of comfort or maybe the grief of having to put a dream of what could be to death. 
change is loss, even when it's good. And if we can say anything definitive about the transfiguration, we can say it was change. It was probably simpler for Peter and for James and John when they could assume that Jesus was just an excellent rabbi. When they assumed that Jesus being the Messiah wasn't an event that would change the world, but instead a promise that Israel would overthrow Roman occupation. It's always easier to imagine and to assume the Messiah as someone who's going to fight our battles, who's going to value what we value. It's simpler to imagine and to assume the Messiah as created in our image rather than to see the Messiah for who he is, the Son of God, to whom we must listen. Change is loss. And when Jesus is transfigured, the Greek word used to describe this change is metamorpho. You can probably hear in that root the, the, the word metamorphosis. This is probably also why Jesus only called up Peter, James, and John to see him unveiled, as it were. He's been maintaining this messianic secret during his ministry in Capernaum in order to avoid a confrontation, an immediate confrontation with the religious and civic leaders. And he probably didn't want to show himself fully and completely to all who followed him because such an unveiling might have led his followers to see his true identity as a betrayal for who they thought the Messiah was going to be, as a betrayal for who they thought the Messiah should be. Because the Messiah is not just about fixing the problems we see. Messiah is about rescue and deliverance for all of God's children. And this change, this vision of the truth of Jesus, it surpasses and overwhelms all our expectations. But even so, change can be loss. That's why living as a Christian, even today, can be difficult. Instead of looking backwards to the heroes of Israel's past to identify Jesus, I think we're called to look forward, to look at who the people are that God calls us to be. It's in this that we can see Jesus at work clearly in looking at who we are called to be. Because the word used for transfiguration here is the same word used by Paul in his letter to the Romans when he calls believers to no longer conform to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That word transformed is the same word as is used for transfiguration. Just as Jesus was transfigured on the mountain, we too are called to be transfigured and to be transformed by God as our lives align more and more with the life of Jesus. But as we transform, we will change. And change is loss. The call of the Christian is to experience loss daily because we are experiencing change daily. We are being transformed by the renewing of our minds daily. And this change, this loss, it's a good kind of loss, but it means being different than the person we were yesterday. And that's hard. Now, it might be a male thing. I know it is in pop culture, but I love being able to drive without needing the map or needing the GPS to give me directions. I know this is a sharp turn. It's coming back to transfiguration, I promise. But if I don't know how to get from one place to another, I need a guide. 
I can't try and do it all by myself because then I'll be in the car for like five hours for a 10-minute car trip, and that's not good for anybody. If I don't have a GPS to rely on or a faithful guide to rely on, I probably need a driver to get me there. In transfiguring himself before Peter, James, and John, with the divine voice proclaiming that they need to listen to him, Jesus is telling them, y'all need a driver. This is a Jesus-take-the-wheel moment where Jesus is going to be the one in the car driving to where we need to get to. It can be disempowering if you aren't the driver. And again, I, I realize that I may not be talking for all of us. This might be more of a Joel thing or a male thing. I, I, I'll own that. It can feel a little bit disempowering to trust Jesus with getting us to where we need to go. And when we have to forsake the driver's seat in our own lives and let Jesus take that, that changes loss. But it ultimately results in gain because it won't take us five hours to get to the place God calls us. It'll take us 10 minutes or, you know, instead of taking us several lifetimes, we'll be able to get to where God calls us because the truth of Jesus surpasses and overwhelms all our expectations. And Jesus is going to take us to the place we need to go. He will transform us just as he himself was transfigured before the disciples. And so I invite us to welcome the loss that change brings. I invite us to welcome the divine work of uprooting the places in your life that don't glorify God. Those are painful, but also necessary. Just like an athlete exercises, not just for the joy of the exercise, but in order to excel when the game is on the line, we too are called to be transformed, to be sculpted in our life of faith. We're not called to be the saviors of the world. That position's been filled. But we are called to be the hands and feet of our Messiah. And we need to welcome this divine work of transformation as preparing us to be more effective hands and feet of Christ in the world. Yes, change is loss. But as we are transformed into the image of Jesus, the only loss we will have are those things which encumbered us, those things which got in the way. So as we prepare to enter the season of Lent, may we see Jesus for who he truly is. May we trust that the truth of Jesus will surpass and overwhelm all the expectations we had for him. And as we grieve those expectations that we need to set aside, those expectations that Jesus would fight our battles, that Jesus would ride shotgun with us, may we also trust that God has something better in store for us, something far greater than the nostalgia for a past that could have been. May it be so. Amen.